you remember banking industry tried this, right? They had this concept of the universal banker and it, it went to where all great ideas go to die, which is to the back rooms of whatever consulting firm they're engaged in first creating the model. But there's some core principles there because the idea is, look, my strategy as a business is to ensure my current and prospective customers have access to world-class solutions from me while my sellers follow best in class of fair market practices. And fair market practices are driven by a good combination of those three things I mentioned, product, technical, customer-facing skills. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Gopkaran Rao, and Gop's the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer at MindTickle. And in this episode, we start off by talking about why Gop believes that now it is more important than ever before for organizations to effectively and appropriately engage with their customers and prospects in conversation, not in sales cycles. And we explore what that means in terms of the business acumen and business agility that sellers need to possess to effectively engage in today's sales environment. Gop and I also dive into the whole topic of how to really elevate individual sales performance. And we also dig into what it means for sellers these days to be sales ready and what is required to help them become sales ready. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Gop, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Gop, welcome to the show. Andy, glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's been a while since we spoke. Yeah, you know, I was actually looking at some old emails uh, and realized we last spoke in September of last year when I think you were on the verge of your wow. annual summer migration back to San Diego. So it's, it has been a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where have you been sheltering during the pandemic? Well, I'm quite fortunate. I'm, I find myself here in Twin Peaks in uh, San Francisco, epicenter of what feels like uh, nice. tech valleys, you know, coming to grips with this with this pandemic crisis. But uh, yeah, fortunate to be here with the family and in some strange ways, not missing not being on a plane a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, I have that exact feeling. I've, I've had this conversation, I've told people that I've only, I think I've been on a plane twice during the pandemic and just going back and forth between New York and San Diego. But first time was I was sort of paralyzed because I was so accustomed to packing a bag every week or every two weeks. And <laughs> it had been three months and I, I didn't know what to do. That's amazing. You, you do have to retrain yourself a little bit, I suppose, to, you know, um, not just surviving, but thriving in this intensely physical yet virtual environment of whatever your working living yeah. space is. And that's been interesting, I think, for so many people on so many yeah. fronts. Well, so along those lines, what's what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself personally during the pandemic? What a great question. You know, I think the the necessity of human contact and yet the ability of the human to work around the inability to make human contact. And if that sounds like a play on words, I suppose I was trying to be clever there. But behind you know, that sentiment, Andy, I personally, just to answer your question more directly, have always thought that I did best when I was in a physical setting 
in line with other people, and that somehow drove the creative process, collaborative communication, and a faster coming to of the decisions that made the wheel spin. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people that sort of prescribe to the analog model of operating, managing, right, producing. And I've been shocked by how quickly, because I was forced to pivot uh, together with my immediate team and my extended team, in what is you know a very global company to begin with, um, the adjustments we've made have embraced a variety of you know agile principles. Have embraced this idea that work now happens in the flow of life, and not the other way around. That micro communication and micro collaboration actually spurs more communication and, and creativity. And so the personal learning for me, I think, is that change, you know, is is something that I'm, you know, I've traditionally been comfortable with. But I think being able to adapt to this virtual environment has actually made me feel that. A lot of things I, I thought about historically in terms of hiring, recruiting, um, decisions can actually, you know, I can I can make those things work fairly well in a virtual remote environment. And um, on the flip side, you know, I think um, it's it's really helped me understand the value of um, embracing kind of um, work that fits to people's life choices and and um, necessities rather than the other way around. So those have been good things overall, I would say. Well, it's a response to one of your comments because it's something that I've, I've read about. I've seen surveys with you know CEOs talking about this. Is is that okay? We've we've learned that lessons about as you talked about, you know, micro communications yeah. and yeah. ability to work yeah. remotely and collaborate different in different ways and so on. It's working, but if it was such a good idea, why didn't we do it beforehand? Look, I actually think why, why? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's a great question. I, the technology has existed. Technology has existed for years. You know, I think the challenge has been traditionally we have approached technology as the end as opposed to the means. I think as with all technology decisions, we often confuse automation as the objective, as the outcome, as opposed to a better way of doing something, no matter what that might be, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's email automation, or it is forecasting, or it is coaching our people, or even simply content management. And I think to a large extent, the ability to, to, to manage, to execute, to produce remotely, to your point, actually got well past the change event that needed to occur. And I think society, or corporate society in general, has been approaching it um, willy-nilly because of the, the you know the events that required it. So, for example, we've always had remote sellers, and so I think sales management, for example, evolved to using these tools and other processes, including flying out and doing in-person um, offsites or you know shadowing in person or ride-alongs with managers, and only used and then basically relied on the cell phone and Zoom and others for specific check-ins. Mm-hmm. You know, similarly, other teams, you know, for example, healthcare has started embracing, you know, remote monitoring services, tele telematics, telehealth, etc. Right. And I think in you know every sort of technology 
um, you know, maturity or evolution, there typically are these change events paired with change change agents. And those change agents are either societal external change agents or internal change agents. And I think what we've seen is many companies like Google and Workday and others, and including many of our customers who frankly pivoted to this idea of asynchronous and ad hoc learning and sales training and coaching, were already starting to set the ways. And I think they were change agents for the rest of industry. And the pandemic, I think, was really a forcing function that has doubled up as a change agent and as a crisis, existential crisis for corporate companies. And the technology has just been there. You know, now we, I think we are faced with a second set of challenges, which is how do we prevent companies or how do we help companies not simply to try and do a lift and shift of existing um, in-person processes to the, you know, uh, in-person virtual world, as opposed to coming at this from a different way, which is how do we return, you know, value and time to our people while improving their productivity by changing the way we think about, you know, time management and, and workload management right. and workflow and so on. And I think that's what we're well, now poised off, you know, uh, next. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, personally, I think f this is, yeah, a big deal because, you look at the vast, vast majority of, of employees, this working remotely is not what they signed up for. Right. And and work has a social component to it as well. And social, not just, you know, yeah, I can have my micro communications, I can have spur of the moment collaborations. Technology enables these things. It's actually it's it's proximity to people. Yeah. Not just and so yeah, there's things being written about this. I sort of sense it in some of the conversations I have for this show and so on and other conversations is people sort of just getting burned out by this thing. And some of it's obviously residual anxiety about the pan, you know, the virus itself, yeah. but some yeah. of it is, some of yeah. it is, yeah, this is just, this is not sustainable in part because I think a lot of corporations have, to a point you made, um, about the balance and the integration of work and life is a lot of corporations have assumed, okay, you're not commuting an hour and a half each way twice right. a day. That now becomes work time. And, and I, you know, I think we have this, this tendency with technology is to say, well, because we can do something we should, yes, yes, instead of looking yes. at it, instead of looking at it saying, just because we can do something, doesn't mean we should. I mean, those have several very striking points you're making, and I'm just sort of trying to collate them in my head. I think this idea of the, the physical intimacy, which is so central to the human condition and drives commerce. I mean, ultimately, we are all in the business of doing business with other people. We should never forget that, mm -hmm. you know, which is why e-commerce, for all of its vaunted promise, you know, is, is, will continue to be a tool that has its place, but will never replace, you know, that interaction between a buyer and a seller. Um, and the other point you make about this idea of exhaustion, I think is very real. It's very palpable. I personally, you know, some, some days just don't want to, you know, log into my computer because <laughs> I'm simply picking up from where I left <laughs> off. It feels like five minutes ago when I went to bed. Um, and, and there's only so much right. you can do in terms of stand-ups and micro meetings and, you know, uh, micro communications. And if I put all of those things together, look, I think what, you're right. I don't think there's a there's a short answer, except to say we are in, I think, phase two of, of an evolution. I mean, someone famously talked to me about this a couple of days ago as sort of similar to going through the process of grief. 
you know, whether you prescribe it to the five-stage process of dealing with grief or the four-stage. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've gone through, you know, the first couple of stages and we are now between kind of reacting and adjusting. And part of the problem is, you know, unlike with grief where you have a specific event that occurs over a point of time, here time itself seems to be stretching a little bit. So we don't quite know whether this thing <laughs> will end next week or next year. So I think we are in this process of right. adjustment, acceptance, you know, and we're all at different stages depending on whether you're in the U.S. or you're in India or in New Zealand uh, or, you know, maybe in Scandinavia. And I think that's what's going to actually stress the system more than anything else because within our pockets, I think we will find good best practices starting to emerge. But those best practices may not apply equally for global companies that have presence in many different time zones and places and where one mm-hmm. is more you know, authoritarian in terms of who can meet who, when, and where. Others might be completely you know, open to it. And that'll create, I think, the next set of stresses that we're just starting to see now as companies embrace an all-virtual or hybrid or all-in-person model. So flexibility, I think, just to sort of close out my comment here, will be the key. I think standardization at a corporate level in terms of accessibility to tools, to resources, to budgets, and then a lot of autonomy and flexibility at the local level to try experiments, do things that are you know, right for you. Some of the same principles right. that apply to you know, ERP systems, for example, certainly come into sure. play, I think, in terms of employee engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, I guess one of my big fears is, and I've, again, read about this recently, too, is is that, yeah, a lot of companies, especially public companies, uh, yeah. finding that, yeah, well, gosh, if we can shed some of this real estate, earnings become pretty attractive. Yeah. That's like, what's really driving these, these decisions, right? Is it great point? What, what is best for the employees and the productivity of the organization or earnings per share. That's a great, great point. I mean, it was interesting. In the first few weeks of the pandemic, I was tracking a lot of earnings calls. And you had, I remember the CEO of Barclays, Mondelez, I believe it was another British bank, maybe I haven't standard charted, but they all came out within weeks of each other, essentially saying, look, we see, and the, the words they use were, you know, kind of interesting, rationalization, consolidation, standardization, you know, all ostensibly seemingly mm-hmm. aimed on, you know, the, the lower half of that balance sheet. Um, Innocuous. Yeah, exactly. You know, and of course, it's wrapped in the in the theory that this is all about freeing up our employees to be productive no matter where they are. So I think it was a good, you know, the messaging was a good balance of kind of empowering and cost-cutting, but ultimately what it came down to was, hey, you know, Mondelez, I'm going to have 500,000, 600,000 employees able to work where they are. If I'm Barclays, I'm going to try and bring the number of global headquarters down to two because that's all we need, really. And then you have, you know, the next stage of companies, the Googles and the Facebooks jumping on. And you have to think, absolutely, there are bean counters who are looking at the per-employee, per-square-foot costs of continuing to keep things in operation. Mm -hmm. But I also, you know, a very good friend of mine is currently program managing, you know, the Google. um, Maybe it's Google or one of the other big tech companies uh, in the Bay Area, and they're just continuing to, you know, drive investments in physical space. So I think there's a sense that what what goes around will eventually come around, and there will be hunger. 
you know, for a sizable portion of the workforce to get back to that old normal. So we'll see. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's what happens. More flexible, some some hybrid model. I agree. Yes, exactly, All exactly. Right. All right. So let's talk about sales a little bit. Is is uh, you've said that it's now more important than ever for companies to engage their customers and prospects in conversation, not in sales cycle. So tell us what you meant by that. Yeah. Look, if you look at the history of sales and, you know, B2B sales in particular, the long-term struggle of presenting a buyer with a universal seller has almost usually resulted in a suboptimal experience. And by universal seller, I mean someone who can completely internalize all the best aspects of that company's culture, have supreme product knowledge, technical skills, and customer engagement and understanding. And so what they've sought to do is to complement, you know, essentially a frontline seller with... The, 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 super, the superhuman. The superhuman. And, you know, and if you remember, the banking industry tried this, right? Yeah. They had this concept of the universal banker, and it, it, it went to where all great ideas have poorly executed go to die, uh, which is back, <laughs> back to the back rooms of whatever consulting firm they're engaged in for creating the model. But there's some core principles there because the idea is, look, I, my strategy as a business is to ensure my current and prospective customers have access to world-class solutions from me uh, while my sellers follow best-in-class of fair market practices. And fair market practices are driven by a good combination of those three things I mentioned, product, technical, customer-facing skills. If I can't, mm-hmm. so companies have two choices. They can build up, they can create a system recognizing that no two humans are the same, and they won't come out of a production line looking and feeling the same. Therefore, it has to be personalized. It has to be role-specific. It has to be in the flow of work, et cetera, and create a system mm-hmm. to enable sellers to engage with customers or in addition to that, they can create a team around the sellers, a selling team, if you will. And this becomes particularly important B2B because, as you know, buyers are now also creating buying teams. And while that's mm-hmm. always been the case, you know, there's Forrester research, for example, that says up to nine people on the buyer side are now engaging up to six or seven people on the seller side. And so what you've got is this perfect storm in an industry that's, you know, an industry that's already complicated by consolidation and overseas competition and partners becoming competitors and move to new revenue models. And so you can't, you know, the companies have been struggling for some time. This, and, you know, this idea of there no being an out-of-the-box out of product, but that we us needing to align requirements to buying processes means many sales motions. And that's where I think my thesis emerges, which is that you have to allow your sellers to operate within this ecosystem where you recognize them as, as unique people, but you maximize their battle of field-ready skills to be able to pivot and adjust because the the hardcore muscles that are required in the field of play are just a are a given. You know, they've they've built, practiced, observed, remediated, and re- reinforced those skills, the ones that matter for their industry or their role so well that what's left to do is really merely react to the 5, 10, 15% that is, you know, specific to the circumstance in which they find themselves. And again, for every company and every industry and every product line, that's going to be different, that combination. In some cases, you know, discovery and value selling are going to be a lot more important if you're in a, you know, fairly complex solution type sell 
versus if you're mm. selling widgets, you know, where process might be the key, you know, your ability to close at large transactions on a consistent basis to write contracts while minimizing your discounting giveaways, et cetera, et cetera, might be important. And I think that's where companies have failed. And, you know, in terms of understanding that, the, the, you know, creating the ideal seller profile, building the system to, to help create and maintain the ideal seller profile, and then putting the wrapper of tools and processes and resources around them. And they go back to the same sin and you and I were talking about, if you will, that original sin of sales, which is let's just bring another tool in. Because that will somehow solve right. the problem, you know, and that creates, I think, exhaustion <laughs> and cognitive noise. So that's that's sort of, I right. think, my principles on this topic. So on top of that, though, this is this is building what you're talking about. Is is yeah. I think we still have this fundamental uh, problem, and and I think it's made for me more uh, cute and able to visualize it better. Is after Gartner put out their buyer enablement yes. study yes. a couple of years ago. And they have this famous diagram now of the, the, the buyer's journey, which they call the yes. spaghetti diagram, which is this messy, recursive, spontaneous uh, process to, to be able to make a, a decision to about what they're going to do and who they're going to do it with. And, and I haven't seen anyone, <laughs> any company that I've spoken to that has said, well, oh, well, we need to change how we're sort of denominating our stages in our selling mm. process to align with what the buyers are doing. And so, you know, when you look at Gartner's uh, study, you know, they've got in that middle of that big diagram, they've got four boxes, which they call the jobs buyers are trying to do, which is identify their problem, evaluate, you know, potential solutions, finalize the requirements or build the requirements and, and select a vendor. And, you know, I asked, I challenged people. I said, so tell me, okay, where in those four jobs does discovery take place? Mm, mm, mm. Where does qualification take place? Are they even relevant in the way we think about them relative to how the buyers perceive things? So we can have these sellers that we think are exquisitely trained, but we're sending them into an environment with a mindset that is completely orthogonal to the one the buyers have. I think you're onto something very important, Andy, and I think you always have sort of, you and I have sort of talked about this in the past, absolutely, and I think what's ironic and perhaps interesting, and the reason, like you, I've recently come into some of this perspective myself is because I've been wearing the marketing hat at MindTickle for a couple of years now, in addition to the stuff, you know, I'd actually signed up to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've realized, <laughs> <Trying to> is, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, what I've realized is that marketing, ironically, I think has a little bit of a leg up on this situation of understanding and engaging the buyer across their journeys for two reasons. One is, as we've all now had drummed into our heads for some time now, buyers are increasingly well-researched, better educated, and a lot more prepared before they're willing able or ready to uh, engage with a human on the other side. Whether mm-hmm. that person is a BDR, mm-hmm. a drift bot, or an AE, you know, it's immaterial. Right. This therefore means marketing is developing not just a single ICP, but many micro ICP, you know, ideal customer profiles for our audience, right. you know, and flavors of personas within that. Um, and is constantly tweaking and pushing out channels and content 
that sit at the many intersections of those micro personas and micro ICPs and constantly using the data to refine and redevelop and republish and re-engage those personas. And they have become the more effective companies and more effective marketers have become a key part of the buyer's uh, education because they're not pushing out mm -hmm. you know, product talk, they're pushing out insights. How are other companies like you dealing with this problem, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've all read the, you know, the books in terms of how to you right. know, do better content marketing. The second thing is, you know, because the buyer's journey is now relatively well understood in terms of, you know, whether you call it awareness to interest to evaluation to selection to, you know, um, stewardship and, you know, championship. I think marketing is able to leverage the same set of tools and a unified data model across the journey of that customer from awareness through renewal and expansion. And they now have, so now you've got the tools, you've got the profile, you've got the content, and you've got the data, and you've got the orchestration, therefore, of, you know, the ability to engage and impact these customers and other, you know, entities within the buyer uh, journey who may be undergoing their own own journeys at different stages in their evolution. And so sales, I think a well-integrated sales and marketing organization understands that marketing's job is no longer this brute force generation of leads. It's really about partnering. Hmm. This is truly about partnering, you know, with sales. And this is where I think sales has the ability to also change the way to operate from being transaction drivers, which is, again, I think a principle that you and I had initially connected on. You know, mm -hmm. again, no two transactions, no two people are the same. Sellers need to be right. able to understand and engage much like with marketing. And, with these. and that's where that universal seller model becomes attractive because in theory, someone who's perfectly, you know, where all the, the, where the generic stuff is muscle memory and you can now focus purely on the EQ of, you know, dealing with your mini persona, uh, you know, is when I think we will get to that next stage. And that is a little bit of an evolution. I don't think that's a revolution, but we'll have to go back to first principles. What will it take to succeed for a person in this role that's unique to my business? And how am I going to prepare him or her to get there, you know, to not be a B player or a C player, but to be right. an orchestrated A player, not a lone wolf A player, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of my thought process on this very important uh, question you're raising. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, and I think that's a great answer. I think that that we still make it too complex, though. Yes, yes, you know, yes. One, yes, of, the, one yes, of one of the yes. one of the insights that that I had looking at the Gartner chart, if you will, is is you know I, I sort of drew a line from the top to the bottom after the first three jobs had ever sort of <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. laid out. And, and I said, yeah, well, here's, here's a problem. Is to the left of the line, all those activities are completely focused on choosing how they're going to solve their problem. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. one to the right, which is selecting a vendor, is about who we're going to do it with. But the way we, we train and focus sellers is – well, go deploy your persuasive skills to become mm -hmm. selected as mm -hmm. the vendor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we're missing this whole point is like, well, they customer still hasn't decided they don't even know what the problem is yet. Right? Exactly. They exactly. don't fully understand it. This is this is this is where your insights come in. This is where your great questions yes. come in. Yes. And yes. and yes. we know 
and the way people make decisions is is and this is they call it build requirements but really what that step is is the customer formulating options for how they're going to solve the problem and so before they make a decision to uh, before they make the step excuse me to go to select a vendor they choose an option how yeah. are we going to solve this problem yeah. And so we've got all of our sellers focused on becoming selected as the vendor when they really need to be focused on just being the answer to the question, how am I going to solve this problem? That's right. And I think That's during that, you know, that, that whole front stage of the, the buying process, quite frankly, most buyers aren't focused on brands. They're focused on solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think methodology plays a big part in this too, because I do think, you know, a lot of companies in tech in particular are in such a rush. Yeah, I think part of the problem is, again, the objective. If you're, if you're mm-hmm. unified, if your single overarching objective is to get to your quarter numbers and get to your valuation, you know, whatever you've signed up for when you raised your last round, you're mm-hmm. rarely in a position to go back to these basic first principles you're talking about, Andy, because, you know, no, every transaction is as good as the ACV or TCV it produces. And, <laughs> you know, every seller is seen yeah, through the prism of the numbers and no one's really focused on the customer. We all, you know, everyone speaks about the customer, but the reality is that, you know, we, you know, this dispassionate conversation about things like churn and renewals and expansion overcome mm-hmm. the fact that real people on the other side of your product Need to be able to get get up in the morning, wanting to log in, and you know, leave at the end of the day feeling like they've accomplished something materially in your in your product, and that you have the data, the insight, the intelligence to help them do a better job when they come back the next day. And so, right. I think it starts with that. You know, what is your? Why do you exist as a business? What is your mission? Your purpose? I think it, then it drives who you hire. You know, into sales and into customer success. And you know, are you, are you solving? Are you, are you bringing in problem solvers with domain? who can do exactly what you're saying. You know, if they don't know what questions to ask, help them with that. If they don't know how to solution, help them solution and bring the right resources in to help them solution. Um, once they have a solution, ensure that you, they are in fact doing their part in terms of getting to those um, mutual KPIs that are built into your you know, contract, hopefully. Uh, in mm-hmm. most cases, customers and sellers both miss a chance to do that. And then ultimately agree on, you know, whether it's in EBR or QBR, that you will track to the um, you know, success metrics you signed up and all the criteria have been met. And I think no one's, I think very few companies are doing that because they're in such, and now with this crisis, this pain has become even worse because everyone's kind of looking at their, over their shoulders, but they're also trying to run full steam ahead. Not quite yeah, right. sure if, you know, they have a quarter or two quarters or four quarters to, you know, get to whatever new adjusted numbers they've put in place. And I think that's why this is such an amazing time for those of us that have the luxury of, you know, runways and customers supporting us i think these are questions we should all be asking and trying to make changes not just on the edges but in the core operating rhythm of our businesses so i'm sorry to wax a little philosophical but i think you're really no but that's a very important question yeah 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 well i think i think another question is somewhat aligned with that this is one that i ask a lot of people about is and you sort of touched on it in something that you had sent me uh, before a few weeks ago before we yeah. spoke as in preparation for this is that is that talking about you know today's business environment sales environment uh, you know business acumen agility um, really become paramount um, 
you know, you get a lot of people talking about, no, now we have to lead with empathy. And I'm thinking, okay, these things have always been the case, right? We've always wanted to lead with empathy with our buyers. We didn't need a pandemic to tell us we need to lead with empathy. Or, you right. know, acumen has always been valued as and as a differentiator, I think, for those sellers that tend to gravitate toward the you know, more consistent, high-level performance. Um I just find it interesting that we're now stressing these things as if they're new. And, and in this whole virtual selling world, it's like, you know, everybody's rushed to publish books about virtual selling. I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, to be good at virtual selling, other than, you know, how you set up your background and, and you know, eye contact in the camera, the fundamental sales behaviors that you'll succeed with are the same, right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I told some of this that had written one of these books, I said, you realize, you know, I asked him a question, when virtual selling started? And he was, you know, sort of thinking about it. I said, well, it was when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, and we, I, it's like, you know, I understand that we got this moment, but it's like, the basics, you know, the fundamentals are still going to take you through. We still need to have our salespeople. Yeah, they need acumen. How are they going to get this acumen? This is the thing that business leaders you know, point out as the thing that's missing most, right? Why they don't value their interactions with sellers is they can't contribute to the deliberations. I think that's exactly right, Andy. And I, I, I can't, I won't even try to dispute that. I mean, I, I, I suppose the only thing that has changed really is something you touched on at the outset. Um, which is availability has decreased significantly because now you know you've got two people on both sides with very different um, operating environments. You know, a seller with a dog and a child on the couch, buyer potentially, mm. you know, racing between you know a, a hospital or a telehealth you know appointment because someone in the family was you know just came down with a high fever. Together with the fact that you know everyone's working twelve hours a day and really doesn't want to be on another Zoom, so I think there is an added pressure here of optimizing digital digital engagement skills because your real estate has been reduced to the you know ten by twelve inch screen. And as I was saying to someone in a panel discussion the other day, look back in the day, you and I had when I say back in the day, it sounds like this is twenty years ago, but let's say even twelve <laughs> months ago, you and I when we first met. You know, would greet each other at the front door, and then I would ask. You know, I would make, I would ask about your commute, and it would give you a chance to potentially gripe about the terrible downtown San Francisco traffic. And then you and I would walk to the coffee machine, and you'd watch me make a fool of myself trying to make you an espresso. And these were all moments of shared kind of, you know, sort of sure. building. You know, and then, you know, and so these are the kinds of things that I think we have to teach. And it, it's sort of part of, I think engagement skills and so on that we don't have the luxury of now uh, together with the pressure of these time zone differences and being at distance with poor internet connections and whatnot so i think that well, has let a, me yeah please go ahead well, but let me let me let me insert something though there is 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 that's i think a different point of view which is that never <laughs> in a yeah. well, i'll say never but you know just take that as a as what it is yeah. is have we been in a situation as salespeople? where we have such common shared experiences with every single person we're talking to. Because we have this global pandemic going on. So never has it been easier to establish common ground with someone you're speaking with. 
That's that. Yeah, I suppose I suppose you're right. I, 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 you're right. At, at, a, at, a, at a high level, yes, it is a unifying event. But I think within the event, there is so much disparity, which again, I think with, with the right social engagement skill, you should be able to use to your advantage as a seller because it's a chance for you to be an active listener. To show empathy. Absolutely, Andy. Absolutely. Uh, and I guess, yeah, you're right. So maybe my perspective was more from the perspective of things we've lost as opposed to things we've gained. And so there's a balancing act there for sure. And again, I think a well, a, a human seller, a human first seller, I think will absolutely be able to pivot. But right. others, others will need to be taught. And that was, I guess, where I was coming from. <laughs> yes. You know, I think perhaps you right. and I have higher, uh, forget me, you have a higher EQ which, you know, allows you to do that. that. <laughs> <laughs> to do that. You know, and I think that's generally the, the case with the distribution of sellers. I think there is some need for taught behavior and up-level skills yes. that are unique to this environment. The second point, I think, now I'll answer the second question, which is why are many of these things that have always been needed suddenly become fashionable to talk about? It's because that's what we do. You know, I think we, we, we like to take a few <laughs> things and, and build on them. And, you know, the race right. is really about who gets his or her Reader's Digest version of some universal truths out with some highfalutin terms in there. You know, it's universal seen as a right. good thing. And, you know, part of it is parading your likes and your, you know, comments on LinkedIn or whatever you know, social channel of choice you have. So I think there's that. Then the third piece, sure. I think, Andy, is the fact that I think companies and buyers and sellers are genuinely stressed about trying to make the right decision because everyone's being asked to do board with less. Everyone's basically concerned about the amount of runway they have. So this parade mm-hmm. of optimality that is required you know, it means that I, as a buyer, will have time, less time to do research, will have less time to meet with, uh, to do RFIs and RFPs. And I'm probably going to be relying a lot more on things like my immediate community, my network, people within my organization, like customers like me. And these are the kinds of things that I think sellers need to be now retrained on because the environment has changed fundamentally again as a result of this pandemic in terms of time compression and availability of people who could spend time with you talking about work in a non-working environment, like going to a dinner or having mm-hmm. things with you, you know, especially if it was your coach or a champion, for example. And a lot of those things are fundamentally changing. So if your methodology was set up for the old ways where you had the executive bridging conversation in person, you know, and you had the team demo, you know, and you had the half-day workshop that involved the use of, of, you know, sticky notes. Those are all things that you've got to fundamentally pivot and reorient for this digital world in which no one's going Mm -hmm. to give you four hours in a Zoom session. Uh, You know, even QBRs, you know, we, we personally have completely shifted from a, um, you know, lift and shift of a in-person VILT type QBR to be completely asynchronous. And the only time we spend now are in small sessions where sellers uh, engage in groups and are sharing ideas mm-hmm. with marketing and others. And those things are starting to work for us. So I think that's where I would come from more. And I think that's what's up-leveling some of this conversation and creating some urgency around traditional skills, but with new modalities and approaches to them. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, but I, it's it's funny because I think that that we got these these sort of competing forces, right? That yes, that how yes, they're responding yes. to to what's going on, and and so some people will take what you've said, and there's a certain segment of people in the echo chamber that's LinkedIn saying, 
screw relationships, right? Customer doesn't yeah. have, <laughs> yeah, you don't need to have a relationship with your customer. In fact, they don't need to think you're likable. Uh, and I've had a, a fairly long discussion with a guy on an episode of this show about that. And and I think they're completely wrong. I think that actually we're going the other way. Yes, time is time is short. It's not going to be this way forever, we know. But yeah. at this moment in time, we do have this ability to create this this common ground. We do have this ability to demonstrate you know, authentic empathy. Uh, and actually, I, I, I think a lot of sellers, and myself included, who spent our careers selling large, complex systems to very large companies, I never took a customer out to dinner. Hmm. I mean, I, hmm. I, I was selling... Overseas, I was having these, yeah, what you'd say, executive bridging conversations on a telephone. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's 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 almost like it's back to the future again because the people I know that were doing this really well never relied on those things, right? I always thought that you know, the people that relied on golf and dinner and so on actually were compensating <laughs> in some respects or not being able to be more efficient, effective otherwise. Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe maybe one reason for that is because our social engagement has crept over into our business engagement, and by which I mean the our our reliance on Twitter and Facebook, and you know, consuming everything in small videos and having things pushed to us via recommendations by some quote unquote smart machine or AI engine. I think that's I think what has changed. Andy, from, you know, in the time, it's not the, the first principles. I think people are still embracing the first principles. I think there's just an expectation. For example, that the way I should be trained or that the way I deal with my customer should be similar to pushing two buttons on Amazon. I should be, you know, as a, the, buyers, the buyer has now been trained. And I think part of it is because there is a new generation that is increasingly in more and more important roles, buying roles. They're either key influencers or they're outright buyers. And a lot of these folks have been taught to expect that someone has already understood your desires and your needs and your ambitions, has looked at people just like you in companies just like yours, and is able to now make recommendations where your ability or need to do any kind of active thinking is limited to simply looking at two columns, comparing two products, and at a micro level, Giving, giving each other Harvey balls and telling you which one is better scored for your business. So there is, I think, this instant gratification satisfaction issue. Mm-hmm. The, second, the second thing is that everything is presented to me when I need it, before I know it. It comes to me via email, you know, whatever my communication is, it's form factor optimized. Three, it's okay for me not to have to engage with a human because the system, I can tell the system what I want, it will produce it for me. And if, I can't, if, I, if it doesn't, I'll simply Google it uh, and I'll find it. And I wouldn't. I don't care about the fact that maybe someone has paid to have their search results higher, but I'm inherently going to trust it. And maybe if I have enough resources to delegate to, then I'll have them bring in the vendors and do some presentations. That's the problem on the buy side. I think on the seller side, we have created this myth that sellers should expect everyone to basically orchestrate things so that when the, you know when the lead comes in, the lead is pre-qualified. And then the marketing and the BDR and the sales consulting team is going to kick in to qualify, challenge, or convert, or evangelize. You know, and then management is going to come in and make themselves available to do some of the things you talked about. You know, 
present the vision and mission, present the competitive differentiation, line up the investors and the big customer logos, and then have CS and PS show up to present how they're going to assemble a beautiful, high-fidelity, high-touch, relationship-based mm-hmm. support model. And so part of the issue becomes, if I'm going to be able to get all these things done, why the heck am I going to spend my time doing some of the things you talked about? So I think the good sellers will do it. They don't actually, they don't actually don't want any of those things. You know, they inherently understand, they control their destiny. And, you know, they are the hub of this, the, you know, of the spokes. And this, so this kind of brings us back to the basic issues, you know, yeah. you know, what is the answer? Is it methodology? Is it management philosophy? Is it, you know, is it process method? You know, all of these things. And that's what differentiates leaders from laggards, in my opinion. So I think these conversations will continue for the next 20, 100 years. Who knows? But um, I don't think <laughs> we, we, we'll ever Wait, solve you mean it. we didn't solve it today? <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy, you put me and you in your room. I think we, we, I think we, we can solve a lot of things, but uh, we don't do we that do enough. Yep. Well, but one, one point about your... Uh, your point about you know changing generations and, and yeah. buyers and influencers and champions so much yeah you know, absolutely true of course is that yeah I think the thing that that people don't acknowledge enough though is that yeah I've got a custom I can sort of want to have this idea in my head that I want to make this like a tra- transaction I take care of on Amazon but assuming they can't because a certain amount of complexity and contracts and yada yada but the thing that is a great leveler is risk. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what generation you're in. If you're making a decision that encompasses some aspect of risk, whether for the organization or for, let's say, for the organization, then implicit in that is there's risk for you personally in the decision that you make. So, what people want to do when there's risk is is they want to mitigate that risk. And one of the ways that buyers mitigate risk is to talk to salespeople. And yeah. I think that this is, you know, I think a lot of customers, yeah, people say, oh, yeah, your buyers don't want to talk to salespeople. Sure, who does? No one wants to talk to salespeople, but they have to. And and there's been studies done on this already about, you know, like in medical healthcare decisions that give people a choice between, hey, here's, we got this this AI-based algorithm that's going to give you uh, what your options are to treat this particular malady you have. And let's say it entails some sort of, let's say surgery, something that has risk and consequence is that overwhelmingly people still want to talk to a doctor. Even though <laughs> the algorithm they believed generated more reliable responses to what they and guidance for what they should do. So I just don't think as long as people are involved in making these decisions that risk is so such a large structure or portion of the decision that it doesn't really matter the generation people want to mitigate their personal risk as well. Look, I think this is a fantastic point and I mean, I'd like to sort of, you know, maybe um, share some data as a way of sort of building on your point. And also, I think the maturity of industries comes into play. I think the healthcare industry in particular, you know, values the word per minute ROI. Every doctor that spends time on filler words is going to see his average utilization rate drop because Medicare, Medicare, or an insurance company is not paying him or her a lot mm-hmm. for bed, bedside manner. And, yeah, so they've actually right. gone in the opposite direction of what we want, right? But every word is right. measured in terms of how does this directly impact my hospital's bottom line. 
In many other industries, I think the problem is the opposite. And the data for me comes from, you know, one of the tools we've actually got, we call it, you know, call AI. It's a conversation intelligence platform. And mm-hmm. when, I, when I look at the data in terms of, you know, everything from word count per minute to the use of filler words, to the use of preambles, of rambles in conversation, it is absolutely shocking when you look at how extreme it is on the opposite end of the healthcare example we just talked about. And this is where I think your point becomes particularly key because buyers absolutely want to talk to sellers. You know, there is huge value in that person-to-person interaction, but not if the person is going to show up and ask them the same old tired questions Exactly. Meeting after meeting, add no exactly. value, right? So I'm 100% aligned with you. And I think part was what, what has been, and this is what I think technology makes possible now. And I think a new data-driven culture, I think is starting to embrace these tools a lot more. And then once you've done that, the second thing comes into play, Andy, which is another point you, you and I have talked about, is understanding what skills should have been displayed on that call. How much of that time should, we have, should have been spent direct, you know, doing needs analysis or discovery? depending on the type of meeting it was meant to be, how much pre-work was done and presented on that call. Has the seller mm-hmm. actively solicited next steps? Has he or she identified who else in the decision chain needs to be engaged in the next meeting? Have they closed the meeting with the next meeting scheduled or calendared? That's the kinds of things I think many companies and sellers have not known even to ask, or have they have, it's been stuck on a you know, one, you know, 10 by 12 inch page stuck on their wall somewhere that maybe they look at once every, every so often. And then their managers don't know to evaluate for that either. So I think the second piece now becomes, therefore, what are the skills that my sellers were required to demonstrate the behaviors and having a way to ma- measure them at that point in time, but also across points in time, across many calls with that customer and correlating that mm-hmm. to deal velocity, for example. And the third thing that we now emphasize is, okay, you've now got the data. Don't stop there. Don't just let them off with a wrist on this, as a slap on the wrist and a prayer and hope. Go back and actively reinforce or remediate those gaps. I mean, reinforce the good behaviors and remediate the gaps. Right. Because the attention span problem is a corresponding issue. And I think that's also where, you know, this next generation is, you know, I think going to start seeing some challenges. Because if you expect everything to be spoon-fed and micro-enabled and, you know, mobile-optimized, that's not always going to be, you know, effective. But I think that's where technology and people will have to sort of find the middle ground and hopefully get to solving the problem. Yeah, and I I think along with that is I see one of the, the sort of outgrowths of this, all of this as you're talking about, is that there's a fear of uncertainty. And sellers have this in spades, right? I think part of the reason sellers gravitate to scripted interactions and yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of more, a little more superficial because you know they've got a they're selling to a persona, not to the person, right? Yeah. Is that they're afraid to ask questions they don't know the answers to. Mm-hmm. That's a really important. And I think that's point. what. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what we're training people to do is is. Yeah, you've I've I've read the persona of this person I'm talking to. Okay, these are their concerns. This is generally how we expect them to answer these questions. And I and I think we need to train people to say, look, every time you're interacting with a buyer, and it's first of all, you should assume that every interaction discovery is part of it. Yeah. Because you're always seeking to yep. understand more yep. because you know 
person with the most information wins. And, and it requires that you ask questions that, by definition, you don't know the answer to. And potentially, that the buyer doesn't know the answer to. Because then that causes them to think the question then becomes a commercial insight for the buyer. Yes, yes, yes. I think this idea of essential sales competencies is something I think you've absolutely nailed there in terms of how you've talked about it. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be, you know, I think the universal skills amongst them are the key, you know, the foundational mm-hmm. skills, communication skills, willingness to learn, prospecting, however you define it. Right, right. Yes, yes. Agreed, Andy, very much. And I think we've lost, I think I think we don't pay enough attention to that. You're right, absolutely. That's what makes, I think, an athlete um, an all-rounder to some extent when, when he or she needs to be because they are grounded, you know, in the basic running, throwing, lifting skills um, at some basic well, level. Well, exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. So I, I created this acronym for those basic skills in sales. I think you master these four, then... You don't yeah. need anything else fundamentally, <laughs> which is you have to learn the acronym is BALD, B-A-L-D. I can't remember if I told you this before. Mm-hmm. So B stands for be human, right? Can yeah. you connect with another human being? Can you build trust, credibility, and rapport? A, ask great questions. Uh, L, listen to understand. The thing that just escapes so many sellers is that one of the biggest sources of value you can provide to a buyer is to understand them and mm. to make them feel understood. Hmm. It's one of the things they hate about sellers, right? I didn't have value with that conversation with that salesperson because they just didn't get what we were talking about. Understanding becomes a critical source of value. So we've got be human, ask great questions, listen to understand, and D, deliver great value. And that value comes in one of you know, a variety of forms, whether it's a question, it's data, it's, it's content, it's case study, customer story, whatever. Um, and it's just, you know, <laughs> you have to do this every interaction. You yeah. practice this, and and that's yeah. Someone told me it's sort of like the I don't know if you've read that book, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Mm-hmm. You know, this yeah. woman talks about yeah. these are the well. That's what this is. This is the equivalent <laughs> in sales. I love it in the kitchen with Andy Paul. But it's you know I in think the it's, kitchen. <laughs> absolutely agree, Andy. You, I mean, I couldn't have um, expressed it better. And of course, on a personal level, I relate to bald so it's it's all it's all very good yeah. oh, i'm sure yeah well clearly yeah. clearly yeah. you do so all right well go we're sort of running short on time and um as always i didn't get to 90 uh, percent of what i had planned to talk about so we'll have you back <laughs> and we'll do that i look forward to that very much andy thank you so much for having me on again and if people well, it was a pleasure if people want to contact you or connect with you linkedin place to go LinkedIn would be great. They can always find me uh, also via email, gop at mindtickle.com. And uh, I look forward to uh, our next conversation. All right. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Gop Rao, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.